Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Well, hello and welcome to show number 377 in our weekly series of podcasts from Engage for Success. Engage for Success is a not-for-profit movement and we are the UK's leading voice on the topic of employee engagement. We're raising awareness and running events through our area networks around the country, as well as our topic and sector-specific thought and action groups. We're developing research, publishing case studies, and shining a light on great practice. So do visit us at engageforsuccess.org to learn more uh, and where you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to be kept in the picture. I'm Jo Moffitt. I'm one of the regular hosts of Engage for Success Radio, but I'm also Managing Director and Founder of Woodread. Uh, Woodread is a specialist advertising agency and we work with clients from a wide variety of sectors to help them use the thinking, the insight, and the creativity of the external marketing world to engage their people and create great places to work. And today, our topic is how to have meaningful, drama-free dialogue as a leader. And I'm very pleased to welcome as today's special guest, Beth Watson. Beth is founder of Navigating Challenging Dialogue. And she's joining us today uh, to, to discuss this topic, um, how the Navigating Challenging Dialogue process can be successful in any place where human interaction is critical. Uh, and my goodness, um, we need that now more than ever, I think. So welcome to the show, Beth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, And um, it's going to be a fascinating topic, I know. Um, But before we get into that, can you just give our listeners a little bit of a flavor about you um, uh, in terms of your professional background, Beth? Yes. Um, I'm an uh, executive coach and a leadership coach. I'm also Mm -hmm. a consultant to many organizations in the high-tech field, government, nonprofit agencies, small businesses, and I've been doing this work for 20 years. I have my own company called Beth Wanson and Company, and I'm the founder of Navigating Challenging Dialogue, which is the foundational process that we teach leaders, business people, Uh, managers on how to have drama-free and productive dialogue, both in the workplace and at home. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, this is interesting, isn't it, that that what we're talking about here, although we're talking at it initially from a a workplace standpoint, the the insights and the understanding and the application actually does go more widely than that. I'm really looking forward to talking about this with you in a moment. But um, as I have been doing with all of my guests, um, in throughout 2020, well, pretty much throughout 2020, since the start of the COVID crisis back in back in March, um, I'd just like to start off, um, if we may, just ask for your perspective on what we've seen in the last uh, 10 months. You know, the COVID pandemic, the obviously the the um, 
focus on Black Lives Matter, which was not just something that had huge impact and, and repercussions in the States, but also um, had big imp implications for workplaces in the UK as well. And, and then, of course, obviously, I appreciate you're talking to us now from, from the US. Um, and, and recent events have, have obviously, you know, put things into a state of, of uncertainty and, and, and uh, flux and fear. So what, what would you take, um, Beth, what, what's been your, your take on the impact of um, events, shall we say, recent events, COVID, BLM and, and more recently on, on the workplace and people's, um, people's uh, attitudes and, and ability to focus uh, on what they're doing? Well, it's it's been one of the most challenging times in my 20-year career, and it's um, fascinating to me because my support of people, when you're a leadership or an executive coach, often you become the place that people can share their truth most freely without fear of repercussions or consequences or retribution in the workplace. And so... Mm -hmm. My work has always been really focused on helping people resolve business problems, figuring out how to give feedback, those types of things. And in over the past several months, it's become more focused or there's been more incidents where we're talking about things like, how can I possibly do my work when my children are home from school? Everybody needs to get on the internet. Um, I have no idea how to be an educator. My spouse is also working at home. I have one executive director I work with who's trying to run a state agency from a garage where it's often, you know, 80, 90, 100 degrees in there. And she's trying to run her whole, her whole program from there. So there's, there's a lot more of that in the dialogue. The other mm -hmm. thing that I see really coming up is that um, people need a safe space, employees, team members, to be able to communicate and talk about what's going on for them. And now that people are working remotely, our time is so constructed to manage it. The Zoom call starts at 9, it ends at 10, everybody's gone after that. So the chats on the way to the water cooler or getting coffee at the back of the room or popping by someone's desk, those mm. kinds of informal communications aren't happening. And people are hungry for that. And yes. because leaders and managers are so stressed out, they, they um, aren't comfortable facilitating that. And mm -hmm. so finding ways to create spaces for that has been really important and something that I'm thankful we've been able to help teams and organizations do. Yeah, and then yeah, the last thing, so go yeah, ahead. then the last thing I'm going to say is accountability and productivity is a huge question for businesses now. What does it look like to hold someone accountable or to measure their productivity when I cannot physically see them? when I can't know what they're doing. And in the absence of information, we create stories. And so I've seen a lot of more suspicion or questioning of how people are spending their time as opposed to being able to manage or lead looking at outcomes. People are still trying to do, you know, seat, seat time and seat. 
or time yes. at the computer type of yes. management, and that's not possible anymore. No, it, it demands trust, doesn't it? It demands huge trust. Leaders have to learn to trust their people um, and yes. uh, measure. It's a big mind shift, isn't it, to go from measuring and tracking inputs to um, measuring and assessing outputs and recognizing that actually the value comes from the latter. Um, yes. It's, it's not something that people are, some people find very difficult to embrace, I think, for sure. Yes. So those are the biggest impacts. I had a leader say to me the other day, I've been doing my job for, I forget how long she's been in her position, but 15 to 20 years. And she said, for the first time in years, every decision I'm called to make feels brand new to me. I feel like I'm hit with brand new decisions every single day that I've never had to face before. So I don't have the I don't have the big suitcase of what I've done in the past that I can lean on to identify how to solve these problems that are we're currently being flooded with. And I, yeah. I think that, that really kind of sums up all the three areas that I talked about. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's fascinating. I mean, I, I, totally, I totally understand that. And it's like people talking about you know, a return to normal. And, and, but actually, the new, whatever the new normal, the new normal ends up looking like is, is not going to be simply dusting off and bringing back the way it always was. I think we've got, a, we've got an opportunity to um, reshape and scope the workplace on a blank sheet of paper in many respects in a way that we've never had that opportunity before. But that, that inevitably means that everything is new. Everything yes. is, is, is coming up with new approaches and new ideas and um, adapting and adjusting. But it, yeah, it's exciting, but it's scary at the same time. Well, and and looking at what happened in Washington, D.C. this week shows that because the norms of Washington, D.C. are, you know, you don't have access to every place. There's steps you have to go through to be able to go into some of the hallowed sacred places. Um, there's behavior norms and expectations that we assume everybody abides by. And what we clearly saw demonstrated to us is that um, those expectations and those norms are not holding during this time. And they're not what's going to carry us. Um, it, it's, um, it's, very, it's been very upsetting, and I know it's been very distracting for both business and personal uh, lives here, and particularly in the U.S. I, 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 can, I can imagine, and... Um... We're all following it with um, with great in, interest and also concern because um, clearly it's you know difficult times for you all over there at the moment. Um, so thank you for thank you for coming on and talking with us today, Beth. Um, and we're going to be talking about your navigating challenging dialogue model. Um, so tell me a little bit about how this came about. Why why did you why did you decide there was a, a need for this? Well, I was um, typical of so many leaders and managers. I went into a position in a company. I did really well at tasks and producing. And so I got tapped to lead and manage a team pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I didn't have any mentoring. I didn't have any training. 
it's the thing that we see so often, which is you're great at producing, you're great at doing the work, you're great at doing the tasks. Here's here's the team, lead the team now, which yeah. is oh, an entirely so different thing. Absolutely. And we see that, don't we, over and over and over again. The person that sells the most gets to be the sales manager. Correct. That was exactly what happened. And that was the whole scenario. And I was really, we were a high performing team. I was really connected with them. I loved being part of the team. And every Thursday night we went out for drinks and we complained about leadership. And the first Thursday night I was in the position, I got ready to look around to find out where we were going for drinks and everybody was gone. And I was uh-huh. not invited to the table. And right. so that's when I began to really understand. And I did that job. I I learned on the job for 13 years. But I kept thinking there has to be a different way to lead. I was leading with sarcasm. I was leading with fear. I was leading with my emotions fully on the table. When I was stressed about numbers, everybody was stressed about numbers. When I was happy mm-hmm. about numbers, everybody was happy about numbers. And, and so, Beth, can, um, I, can, I, can I interrupt you a minute? Sorry, Twin. Can yeah. I just ask you a question? And, and presumably, you were leading like that because you were mimicking and following the behavioral style that you had seen your leaders exhibit. Yeah. I was following the culture of leadership in the organization that I was in. 100%. Yeah. 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 And, um, and the books at the time, this will date me, uh, were things like, um, you know, the art of the deal by Donald Trump and Jack Welch and, and the (laughs) men who led in that, that's how they led. Yeah. And, and I began to really question that. And I began to study, how the brain works, how people's motivation works, what is emotional intelligence and what does that mean? What happens for us when we're in a heightened state? What, what happens in the amygdala when we're feeling triggered or whatever? And then how do we react or respond to situations as they come up? And as mm-hmm. I really began to get into that, I began to see that leadership is really about being able to manage your own emotions and it's about emotional self-awareness. And if you can do that, you can lead in a way that people aren't triggered and people are not reacting or defending or feeling the need to blame, but instead they can have positive conflict. They can navigate tough conversations And that is the way I wanted to lead. So I created Navigating Challenging Dialogue. I took, um, I stepped out and I took some time and I really spent time thinking about what did I want, how did I want people to be at work? What opportunities did I want them to have to use their genius, to use their skills, to be able to show up and communicate in healthy ways? And so that's why I created this model. Right. Okay. So can you um, tell us a little bit about the model, Beth? So the model really um, is a philosophy, and it's infused in everything we do. But it begins with some basic training um, around uh, how does my brain work, some awareness building, what happens inside of me 
Because what happens in tough conversations, what happens when drama and chaos get created is all internal. Our thoughts, our beliefs, our assumptions, our unspoken expectations and our biases are what really bring out our emotional reactions. It's what leads us either to shut down, defend, blame, um, any of those things, Lead, you know, quit a job. And so what we first teach is a self-coaching process around going through, writing out the scenario of what's happening, and then going through and identifying what are the facts versus what are my story. And then we teach three more steps to the process, which get you ready to be able to engage in any conversation that is challenging, Um, regardless of whether it's a surprise, you're walking down the hall and someone says something to you that catches you off guard and you feel yourself bracing against it or wanting to shut down or wanting to tell them off, or if it's a planned conversation you need to have, like giving someone feedback or, um, you know, delegating work or doing a performance evaluation, whatever those pieces are. Um, talk, which lately we've been doing so much work around answering unanswerable questions, right? Mm-hmm. People want answers. We don't have yeah. answers right now. We have no answers about what's going to happen. Is the budget going to be cut? Are there going to be layoffs? When are we going back to work? Will I get sick? We don't know. And so how do you work with your brain to get in a clear and clean place to provide fact-based answers to people when they need them, even when you don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the start point is that you have to, if you are, if you are a leader or a manager or a people leader, you have to start by understanding how your brain, how your brain is working in order to adapt and adjust the way you behave with your people because you understand that their brain will be responding in the same way to these things. Is that, is that what you're saying really? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So we have, we have mantras, we call them mantras that are the kind of things you keep tapping back to and navigating challenging dialogue. And the first one is the only person I can manage is myself. So I first have to get clean and clear with everything that's going on in my brain, because if I walk into a room assuming or fearful that someone is going to behave a certain way, that their values are going to be aligned with mine. If I think I know what they should do as a result of the conversation, I'm not going to just be clean and clear in the dialogue. Mm -hmm. But if I can walk in just stating the facts as I see them and then being able to have a conversation about the facts and the facts only not bringing what I think they should do, how I think they should respond, how I expect they should behave. I mean, think about how many times during the course of the day you have the thought, well, if I were them, I would. I think yeah. they should. We don't have any control over that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. It, it, interesting. You, you talked uh, um, about how um, you, you need to do that. You, you, this approach applies in 
a more sort of formal feedback type of way. But also you you touched on if you you know somebody passes you in the corridor and says something. So am I right in saying then that what you're describing is that once you once you get the hang of all this, you don't have to. It's not always about sitting down and planning your approach and how to do this stuff. Sometimes it does actually, once you apply this approach, it starts to become second nature so that you can just respond appropriately with the knowledge that you've gained from this technique or this approach. Is, is that right? Yes. So when I got promoted to that position and I had feelings of insecurity around my expertise, right, my ability to be an expert in that role, um, I would pass my supervisor in the hall or the CEO, or whatever, and they'd say, oh, hey, Beth, we don't need you at that meeting. You don't have to come. I would then go into a panic about all the reasons why I was guessing. I'm not doing a good job. They don't want me in the room. I'm not part of the team. They don't think I know my stuff. And I would waste so much time wrapped up in these stories instead of simply taking a breath, looking at the facts, which are the only thing I know to be true is I bumped into the CEO. He said, oh, hey, we don't need you at the meeting. That's all. Those are the only facts I have. Everything else is story. But now yeah. because I'm wrapped up about that and worried about that, one of my staff people pops in my office and asks me a question. I bite their head off. Because I'm all wrapped up in this other thing. We also teach clarifying questions. So maybe not in that moment could I say, hey, Dick, could you, give, could you just help me to understand what, why you don't need yeah. me in the meeting? Or can you say more about that? Thank you for telling me. Can you say more about that? Oh, we changed the topic of the meeting. It's going to be about X or this priority came up. We're going to do this yeah. instead. 90% yeah. of the time, it's not about me at all. But as yeah. humans, in the absence of information, we make everything about ourselves. We, we fill a vacuum, don't we? We create our own narrative and, and we create... We, we, we're hardwired to find danger, of course, aren't we? Um, it's, yes. It's why I, you know, I find all this really fascinating, this whole this neuroscience thing. It, it's just amazing. And so much of it is outside of our own control, Um uh, but we can learn to master it. I mean, that's what you're you're saying that from both sides of the dialogue, whether I'm the leader having the discussion with my re direct report or whether I'm a direct report banging, knocking into my, you know, bumping into my leader in the corridor. I, either way, if we can understand what's going on inside our heads, we can fashion strategies to better manage the situation. We can literally hack the process. So our amygdala gets a signal that there's danger, which is we have been created to have it. It helped us survive. That function helped us to survive. And yeah. it immediately sorts stimuli into things I need to protect myself against and things that are good. It puts it in good and bad categories. And so that one comment, we don't need you at the meeting, is likely going to go into the I need to protect myself, bad things are happening category. And if I don't hack it right there, if I don't question it right in that spot, I am going to begin to take a bunch of actions that are not going to, and they're not going to help me and they're not going to be predicated on what is the truth in that moment. 
So it's mm. literally a hacking process. And once you learn it, what people say to me all the time is, I can't even tell you how much easier my life has gotten. And people use it with their teenagers. They use it with their in-laws. They use it with their partners. Every time we do a corporate training, I hear back from people, oh, my, after the first day, they come back the second day and like, I tried that with my, you know, 14-year-old daughter. It was yeah. amazing, the difference in our dialogue. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? So I think you've written, you've written a book about uh, built based on, on this approach, haven't you? And do, do have a plug for your book, Beth. Go on. Oh, thank you. So it's coming out tomorrow, and I'm so right. excited about right. it. Yeah. Very exciting. It's called Mastering Feedback, Everything You've Never Been Told About How to Give Feedback. And folks can just go to the ncdpublishing.com website to be able to buy the book tomorrow. Um, the thing that uh, – the reason I wrote it, is because I have been coaching leaders and managers and supervisors uh, around solving really complex problems that mm-hmm. would not have turned into complex problems if they had just given feedback in the very beginning when it popped up. But when I question why they didn't, everyone says to me things like, I don't want to create disharmony. I'm afraid the person won't like me. I don't want to upset them. What if they cry? Mm -hmm. And so they go through all these gyrations of creating all these workarounds versus solving the problem or dropping hints and hoping the person will get it. But what happens instead is that the rest of the team sees that the challenge isn't being dealt with. So now morale is going off the rails. Employee engagement is suffering. The person who's a problem is taking up all the real estate in the leader's mind because they don't know how to solve the problem. And it all could have begun started with the feedback. So at the beginning of December, I coached someone for the 150th time on this topic. And I said, I'm going to write this in a book. And I spent a weekend and I sat down and I put 20 years of coaching into this book. And uh, we put it out to early readers and people were blown away and absolutely loved it. And so we rushed it to press and here it is. Oh, excellent. Excellent. So what I can do is I'll put the link on our, on our website, uh, on the, on the radio show uh, link, Beth, so that if people Thanks. can to get hold of it, they, they can. So, so, I mean, you're right. People are, people really run away from giving feedback, don't they? And they, they, they kind of go yeah. round and round the houses to avoid giving it. And, they put it in a sandwich and they give good news at the start and then they put the feedback in the middle and then they put the, another bit of good news at the end. And then people only remember the good news. They only remember the bread and the sandwich and they don't remember the filling or they misunderstand the filling. I mean, we are absolutely useless at it, aren't we, by and large? Yes, yes. Feedback is one of the things that just amazes me. I was, I was working in a government agency where people are required to have 40 hours of leadership training a year. And I went over this four-step process that I have for giving feedback in about 15 minutes. And one of the managers who's been there, he's a career manager in government, said, oh, my gosh, Beth, you just taught me in 15 minutes what I haven't been able to learn in 20 years. And (laughs) someone else said, uh, in the training, they tell us, just grit your teeth and give the feedback and get it over as fast as you can. Nobody likes it. There's no good way to do it. 
and I'm that's I I don't agree with that. <laughs> I do not. So is that, I mean, where do where is where's the you know the traditional sort of approach to training people on how to give feedback? Where where does that fall short? How does that fall short in your experience there? Well, I think the feedback sandwich is a classic thing, right? We always hear about that. Well, you can see it coming a million miles away. And the good and the good, the bread, doesn't ever feel authentic because um, we know that it's manufactured to soften the bad or the difficult. And feedback isn't, feedback is not ever bad. We need feedback to be able to grow and develop. The challenge is, as human beings, we also are desperate to protect our concept of self, our belief about our capability and how we are. So that's the conflict. The conflict is that you have to step in and give people what they need to hear so they can grow and develop, which they want to do. But in doing so, you're going to poke a hole in their idea of how they're doing. And in that place, is where the discomfort comes. Leaders are resistant to give feedback because we don't want to experience the discomfort of making someone else uncomfortable. 90% of the time when people finally give the feedback, they, they tell me after, oh, you know what, it actually went really well. Oh, we actually were able to take some action steps on how the person was gonna move forward. And so um, it's the fear of making someone else uncomfortable and us being uncomfortable doing that. So we have to shift the whole paradigm around feedback. Feedback Mm -hmm. is not a performance evaluation. Feedback is not performance intervention. Feedback is a tool to help people get closer to using their unique strengths, talents, and genius to be able to grow and develop in whatever it is they're doing. That's what feedback is. That's what it is. And we need skills to be able to use it effectively and powerfully. So Beth, I'm going to have to say we've run out of time. So um, thank you so much for for joining us today. Thank you so much for sharing that insight. Um, I will put the the link to your book on on the radio show page. And uh, all that remains for me to say is thank you, Beth Watson, founder of Navigating Challenging Dialogue, for joining us today. Thank you for listening to Engage with Success Radio. And we'll see you at the same time next week. And don't forget, you can download or stream any of the great shows from our archive at any time. So thank you and goodbye. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.